I'm Ben, the author of Through All Ten Store. In this podcast, I take us into the Mega Dungeon to interview veteran GMs about the tools and techniques they use to create and run Mega Dungeons. Entire campaigns where the adventuring takes place in a single giant dungeon with hundreds of rooms spread out over many levels. I have so many questions to ask our GMs. Why run a Mega Dungeon campaign? How can you build a single adventure location so that it sustains excitement over more than 100 sessions? Mega Dungeons are huge. How do you even get started prepping them? To answer these questions and many more, I'm going to talk to the people who know best, the GMs with years of actual experience running amazing Mega Dungeon campaigns. It's my great pleasure to introduce James Malashevsky. James writes the prolific and popular blog Grognardia. He's the author of Thousand Sons, The Cursed Chateau, and the excellent Traveling Volume, among other things. But he's here on Into the Mega Dungeon because of his Dwimmermount Mega Dungeon campaign, which he originally chronicled on Grognardia. I'm especially glad to have James on the podcast because it was in no small part reading Grognardia including those posts about Dwimmermount that helped to get me back into role-playing games after a decade away from the hobby. So I'm delighted to have you on the podcast, James. I thought I would start out by asking you a perhaps deceptively simple question. What is a mega dungeon? That's a very good question. If I were to try to answer it succinctly, I'd say a mega dungeon is an adventure location that is large enough to sustain an entire campaign, sort of a world within a world. I know some people fixate on numbers in terms of it has to have these many levels or this many rooms or something like that. And I can understand that. That's reasonable. But for me, I look at a mega dungeon as something that is large enough, however you want to define large, that it can sustain a campaign just by itself, that there doesn't need to be anything else beyond it. There can be, and there almost certainly will be, but it has to be as I say, significant enough a location that a campaign can be centered entirely around it and within it. Would you tell us a little bit about your Dwimmermount Mega Dungeon campaign? It's been quite some time since I was actively running it, but when I began doing it, my goal, my intention was to try to get a sense of what it was like to run a campaign like that, a Mega Dungeon-centered campaign, because when I was younger, when I first started playing D&D, that was not a style with which I was familiar. I knew kind of very vaguely of the existence of things like Castle Greyhawk or Blackmoor, but since none of those existed in published form, I didn't have them as a model. So we didn't really play that way. So when I got back into playing D&D, old school D&D, in the early 2000s, I decided I wanted to run a campaign that was centered around a dungeon. And so... I began to sort of put together some ideas I had, very vague ones, of a large dungeon inside of a mountain, and that was the origins of Dwimmermount. Then I started playing. Originally, we used original D&D, the three little brown books, and over time began to add elements to it from Greyhawk and Blackmore and Eldritch Wizardry as we needed them, but we wanted to stay as close to the original rules as possible. And that campaign went on for several years. We played it on a weekly basis, and it was, it was something of an experiment that I had done with the intention of 
understanding the dynamics of a campaign that was centered all around a dungeon rather than dungeons being kind of these one-off locales that you would visit for a session or three and then you would finish them and move on to a different dungeon. Whereas Dwimmermount was intended to be something that would keep the characters coming back week after week as they delved deeper into it and that all the various levels and inhabitants were connected in some sort of a way, that there was a emerging kind of, I hesitate to use the word story, that's not quite what I mean, but that there was a universe, a setting that was being explored and revealed through the course of exploration through the dungeon. And it went pretty well, I would say. I, I had a lot of fun doing it. The players certainly did. And I learned a lot about D&D and what it's like to run a campaign that's centered around a dungeon, which, as I said, is something I had never really done before. Could you say a little bit more about what you learned? One of the, the big things I think I learned that was probably the most eye-opening was the idea that, and I think I alluded to this earlier when I was defining a mega dungeon, that a dungeon itself can be a setting. That it's not just sort of this place you visit, you go in there, you poke around, you fight some monsters, you get some treasure and you leave and you're done with it. You never think about it again, but rather that a dungeon is capable of actually being a persistent facet of an ongoing campaign, that it can be the place that everything revolves around and that can hold players' attention for long periods of time. So I think that was one of the most eye-opening aspects of this because when I would read the descriptions of things like Castle Greyhawk or Blackmore, it, it seemed baffling to me at the time that they could hold players' attention for so long. There are stories of people coming to players in like the Lake Geneva campaign coming to Gary Gygax in the middle of the week and asking to go through the dungeon. They were that enthusiastic about finding out more things outside of the, their regularly scheduled times of, uh, of play. And I just, I shook my head at that and just couldn't imagine what that was like. I think partially because my experience of dungeons was very heavily influenced by adventure modules that TSR published, many of which had their origins in tournament play, which is a very different style of play, very focused and limited kind of approach to dungeons. So that was a big, big eye opener to me, as I say. I think the other thing I came to realize in a much more strong way than I did before is just how important to it is for the players, for the characters to have hirelings and henchmen. That is something that, again, when I played as a younger person, we had them because they were in the rules. It was there. So we knew about them. Like, okay, well, this is what you need to do in order to play. But it wasn't something that we really, I guess, understood, that we didn't really see why you would need them. But in the Dwimmerround campaign, the characters, because there were relatively few of them, they were between four and six characters in any given session, they found that they needed help with various things. They needed people to carry all the treasure. Again, I was trying to play original D&D as close to the rules as possible. So as a consequence, we used the XP rules as they were, which meant treasure was the most significant way to gain experience points. So they needed bearers to carry stuff so that they could take it out of the dungeon with them. They also sometimes found there were portions of the dungeon that, that needed, they needed help for, for fighting. They needed some men-at-arms to accompany them to take on some of the larger and more dangerous sections of the dungeon. It really made me begin to understand, oh, D&D, &D, as we got it, 
the rules that are there are there because they evolved from actual play that Gax and Arneson, a lot of the other early people in the hobby, when they were playing these kinds of campaigns, they needed these things and they didn't just invent them on a purely theoretical basis and thinking, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we had rules for such and such? I was like, no, these are the rules that they needed that came up through play. So those were a couple things that really stood out to me and have still stuck with me all these years later. Could I first just ask you, so you had four to six characters in a given session. Yes. Around how many players did you have playing in the campaign at at any given time? At any given time, it was equal to the number of characters. So it was about four to six players most of the time. There were occasions when we'd get a few more people who would pop in because they knew I was running it and thought, oh, that'd be fun. But they didn't stick around. The thing that really struck me in what you were just saying was that when one is confronted with the idea of a mega dungeon, an entire campaign in a single dungeon, initially that proposition <laughs> sounds hard to understand. And and you pointed out, I think, quite succinctly why, namely it's hard to understand how this could hold the interest or attention or passion of the players. That is, wouldn't it get old? Wouldn't it be boring to be in the same dungeon for an entire campaign? And I think you sort of teased what part of the answer to this conundrum was, which is when you said that you discovered that a mega dungeon could be an entire setting and that exploration of the dungeon could be in that way, exploration of a kind of a whole world, a whole setting. Could you say a little bit more about how that worked for you? When I started Dormout, there really wasn't a world. I initially, as I said, I wanted to be an experiment in, in a mega dungeon. So what I sat down to do is initially I just, I drew a map of a level. And I just started populating it fairly unimaginatively, I think, early on with the things that you would find in a low-level dungeon according to the dungeon stocking rules in original D&D. Because I thought, okay, well, I'll just start here and see where it goes. It was a very unambitious thing to begin with. It was just a simple matter of wanting to get a sense of what it was like to run a campaign like this. So I just started like that. But as the players began to explore it, they would find things that, or rather, I shouldn't say they would find, well, see, that's the interesting thing. I sort of stumble over these words because what I don't want to give the impression of that there was initially any intention this was the case. But I'll give you an example that the player characters would go into a room and I would describe it with whatever was there. And then they would often ask for additional details about things. And... Either I had an idea, a strong sense of what this room would be like, or I didn't, in which case I would often make up a detail on the fly. And then they would take it and think, oh, that's interesting. They'd file it away. And then later on, they'd come to another room. They'd ask a similar kind of a question, and I'd come up with some answer. And again, I wasn't intending this to be the case, but I realized based on their questions that they were starting to draw conclusions from the answers I had given them about some kind of connection between them. And then they would ask further questions, which started me to thinking about what the world was. Where did this dungeon exist? Because initially there was just the starting town that was outside of the dungeon and the dungeon itself. There was, the rest was all just very, very vague. But bit by bit, through their questions, through the results of encounters that they would have, things that would come to my mind through just 
doing very simple things. I just really want to stress there wasn't any strong initial intention of this. It just sort of happened. We began to kind of chip away everything that didn't look like an elephant, so to speak. And the end result was there were these things, these elements that uh, started to emerge, some historical details that I found interesting and I started to think about them. And then as I added further levels to the dungeon, I incorporated them much more strongly and intentionally. But to start with, it wasn't like that at all. It was just quite simple and even banal, to be honest. But through play, these questions and answers started to emerge and a world started to be built. What I love about that so much is that, in a sense, you're driven by like the natural activity of the players. That is, they took themselves to be exploring a space, and so they were trying to make meaning out of the things they found. And so they were trying to put together a picture. In a way, it's built into the idea of exploration that you're trying to puzzle something out. And so as good players, as engaged players, they began doing that. And from that seed then grew elements of the setting. I think that's really oh, oh, yeah. beautiful. Ab absolutely. I say this quite without any kind of embarrassment. I'm a very lazy referee. I don't invent more than I need to, generally speaking. I mean, sometimes something will catch my imagination and I'll sort of run off with it. But for the most part, I tried to avoid coming up with more than I needed at any given time. And so much of what eventually became really strong elements of the Dwarmout campaign were the result of on-the-fly reactions to things that the players had come up with, and then we would elaborate upon them from there. So it was a kind of just-in-time sort of development process. Things only emerged as they needed to, for the most part. There are exceptions, but that's primarily the case. You described Mega Dungeon as an adventuring locale or a site of exploration. And I wanted to ask about a, a particular aspect of that or the kind of site of exploration it is. And that is as a geographical sort of space to be navigated and explored. One of the things you point out on your blog, which was a discovery for you, was the extent to which player mapping seemed to matter or affect the campaign. Do you want to talk about the Mega Dungeon as a space to be navigated in that kind of a way? That question is another one of those things that I learned through play. Again, when we were younger, we used to map just because we were told that's what you were supposed to do. So we did do it. But with the Dwimmerout campaign, what became very clear quite quickly is that as the players started to map, it gave them a sense of, it, as they started to map, they could see gaps in the map where they would think, well, there's a space here. Maybe there's a hidden room somewhere, for example. Or look at this side of the map. It has this kind of a feature. And we've seen from looking at other parts that there's a mirror on one side or the other. Maybe if we go this other way, we'll find a similar kind of a structure. What the map actually did is it gave them help them to have a bigger picture of what was going on so that they could more fully explore the actual space itself. I think a lot of times if you don't use a map, if you don't have a map, and I include this uh, if you're using some kind of a virtual tabletop, of which I'm not particularly fond, but I know people like to use them for things. And having that in place of someone sitting down with graph paper and pencil, it 
it gives the person who's making the map and the other players who are consulting it a much better sense of what it the space actually looks like and where everything is in relation to each other. If you have a large enough space with a lot of hidden details and secret rooms and peculiar passages and so forth, you start to notice things that you otherwise wouldn't. And it was a good way to represent, I think, the kinds of things that a character who was actually in the dungeon would probably notice that a player who sort of abstracted from it might not. Right. And the whole drama of finding new ways down. One thing that's wonderful about the mega dungeon as a form is the excitement at finding a staircase that Absolutely. Down. Yes. And another thing that is connected to that comes up a lot in your play reports is that I feel like having that sense of space also helped the players. It gave them direction. It gave meaning and a yes. plan. So they would say, you know, well, we're going to go here to do this. We think there's something to find over here. So that's where we'll be going this session. Or there were those stairs we uncovered that led down. Maybe they'll bypass this area we were in on a lower level before, or something like that. So it seemed to almost provide material that would orient and give shape to their explorations. Very much so. And the other thing, too, is that they would have, it's come to recognize landmarks, that there were certain rooms that acquired a kind of familiarity to them over time because they would know this room had something in it that was of interest or value to them or could aid them in some fashion or this was an area that they wanted to avoid because there was a good chance that some creature was going to be there so they would stay away from it i mean it was a map right as a setting even though it was all inside and bounded it still had that kind of world-like flavor to it after a while that they would recognize over here is this thing over here is that thing and they would travel from place to place with reference to landmarks and they would serve as guideposts for their own further explorations of things and that was really fascinating to watch that evolve through play how do you think about different levels in a mega dungeon that is what how do you think about their relation to one another or what does the idea of a deeper level represent to you how did you approach that in Dwimmermouth? well initially i think i had a pretty traditional dnd-ish kind of understanding of a level that as a level increased in its numerical number, so third level versus fourth level or whatever, it was more the kinds of things you would encounter, the monsters that would be found there would be more difficult to defeat. They would be more dangerous. And likewise, the rewards commensurately more valuable. As time went on and the campaign sort of evolved and I got into a kind of rhythm of what it was about and what I was doing with it, what started to happen was that the lower levels tended to be weirder and more full of mysteries and secrets, more intentional kinds of setting elements that I wanted to explore. Now, again, in many of those cases, I still didn't really have any strong idea of what I was going to do with them or what it all meant. But I started after a while to get this sense that there was, there was more going on at the dungeon than I had originally imagined, and that there was kind of a history behind it all that I wanted to explore myself with the players. So I started putting 
stranger and more peculiar kinds of things that would just catch my fancy into the deeper levels as things were going on. So that was kind of, I think, the relationship between them, at least as the game started. That comes through really vividly in your posts about Dwimmer Mount. I almost walked away from reading about them with a kind of picture where it, it seemed like in your campaign, it ended up being the case that sort of pe- penetrating deeper and deeper into the dungeon was really a way of penetrating deeper and deeper into a mystery. And I see how that arose organically. You've described that process quite well, but I also think it's sort of a beautiful effect. And maybe it's part of the answer to the question how a mega dungeon could be a setting. It was as if by descending levels, not only did they players enter more and more challenging terrains, but they also got deeper and deeper into kind of mysteries of the world that you were creating. I mean, deeper into layers of history, deeper into all kinds of weirdness. Yes, I think that's exactly right. I have to say, too, I think it's important to point this out. I was really heavily influenced, I think, in my original conception of what original D&D was like by Philotomy German's OD&D musings. I read those because I was trying to get a sense of what original D&D was like and how it differed from other later versions of Dungeons & Dragons with which I was more familiar. And in that, he talks about the dungeon as a mythic underworld, is how he described it, and drew upon, made allusions to classical myth descent to Hades and things like that from like Greek mythology. And I was really struck by that, I think, and that was always in the back of my brain. So... Even though, again, it wasn't fully intentional, I suppose I was kind of driven by that sense that the deeper levels as you're going down, that there was this kind of, I don't know, initiation into some greater mysteries. Another thing that is clearly one of your fascinations, I mean, it's here, but it's in many things that I've read by you over the years, is the mixing of fantasy and science fiction. Would you like to talk about that? You're absolutely right. That's certainly a kind of long-running obsession of mine. When I was younger, I remember being very put off, I guess, by the adventure module Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, because that's a very explicit inclusion of a spaceship in the World of Greyhawk setting. And the dungeon is really a crashed space vessel. And At the time, that just seemed wrong to me. I just didn't like it for some reason. It bothered me. But yet at the same time, I was quite fascinated by the adventure because it was so well presented and so interesting. And I could see all of the possibilities that it opened up. And later, just even a little later than that, as I became a bit more familiar with kind of the books and comics and other things that were influential on early D&D, I saw that this happened quite regularly, that there was this mixture of fantasy and science fiction, and that the writers who basically created modern fantasy didn't see any contradiction between that. I think over time, just growing familiarity with it started to make me think, oh, well, maybe it isn't so wrong to do that. And it's an idea that, again, I didn't fully intend it, but it was one that really fascinated me. And I I think 
the notion of a secret science fiction setting where there's a sort of background that is really rational and technological and so forth, but that over time has been forgotten and has all this accretions of myth and legend and misunderstanding and is treated as if it were magic, sort of Clark's Law type thing. I loved Gamma World and Gamma World included that too. I mean, Gamma World as a post-apocalyptic setting, but if you're playing it from the perspective of the characters who are living in it, it might as well be a fantasy setting because it's just these ancients that lived in the past that had all these wondrous things that they could do and this these vast magical tools and so forth. And now you're wandering around in the ruins of the world that they once ruled. That's a really common common trope. And if you grew up like we did, like in the 70s, that was a, a regular thing. You know, you got Planet of the Apes, for example, that has that in it. And I guess over time, it just became something that I wanted, again, to explore. And Dwemer Mount definitely, definitely has that. That's what happens as you go deeper into the dungeon. But that, like everything else, I feel like I'm going to be saying this a lot today, but uh, it was not intended. It just sort of grew over time. I love this idea of this sort of secret science fantasy character of a setting, you know, being beneath the surface so that as one sort of pursues the deeper and deeper secrets of a setting, there's a, a certain kind of fantasy rug that gets pulled out from under you by stages. I think that's really wonderful. I know you're working on a project now called The Secrets of Shah Arthan, where I feel like you're thematizing some of these ideas even more in a way. Could you tell us a little bit about that project? Secrets of Sharathon is a, again, it's one of those things that kind of grew over time and is continuing to grow. In order to sum it up simply, I often say it's kind of my techamel. It is an attempt to produce a much more intentionally secret science fiction setting where there's a background, a deep background that none of the people living in the setting in the present day know about, where it's a science fictional, highly advanced technological society. And then something happened and it fell. And then now you have this kind of fantasy overlay on it. And the reason I say that it's like my techamel is that I wanted something that was not vanilla fantasy, didn't have the usual kind of Western European, Middle Earth, sort of Fafford and the Grey Mouse or Conan kind of vibe to it, but something that was a bit more sophisticated. I mean, sophisticated in the sense of Baroque, I guess, complex kind of exotic fantasy. So that is the broad idea of the setting. So it's a pretty traditional fantasy role-playing game setting in the sense that you have parties of characters who go out in the world and explore things. But the societies that exist, the inhabitants of it, the creatures that are around, even the magic items and magic in general, is different. And so that's what that setting is all about. Does the Secrets of Shah Arthan have a mega dungeon in it? It has several mega dungeons, actually, at least in principle. Originally, it's funny you asked that question because originally I intended to spend a lot more time developing a mega or several mega dungeons for it. I was very ambitious and realized that was not going to happen. But I initially I called the setting the vaults of Sharathan because I wanted these vaults, which were these ancient underground facilities to be the kind of focus of play. 
And they still are. I'm working on one of them now through the Dungeon 23 thing that Sean McCoy came up with at the beginning of the year. So bit by bit, I'm detailing one of them beneath one city. But the idea of the setting is that many of the most significant human settlements, the large cities that are often the capitals of, you know, kingdoms or empires or even just a powerful city state are built atop these vaults that exist beneath them and that there's some weird stuff down there. So yeah, there are mega dungeons and I fully intend to explore them, but right now I'm still in that kind of chipping away at everything to see what I get for the whole, the overall setting. So it's a very different approach than I had with Dwimmer Realm because I'm trying to build a setting at the same time with the mega dungeon aspect being secondary, I guess, and what's there being more intentional, which ironically I find is actually a little harder to do than the other way. But I think I've already done the one approach, so I thought I would go with a different one this time. For listeners who may not know, could you remind us perhaps what Dungeon 23 is? Oh, sure. Sean McCoy, who is the creator of the game Mothership, a science fiction RPG, which is quite excellent. He proposed at the end of last year an idea that he called Dungeon 23 for 2023, where people would decide, would start to create a mega dungeon over the course of this calendar year. Each month would represent a level of the dungeon and each day a room. So every single day you would describe simply one room. And by the end of the year, if you kept with it, you would have a 12 level, 365 room dungeon. People can quibble as to whether that's really a mega dungeon, but it's certainly a very large dungeon. And if, if you do that many rooms and you keep up with it, you'll have something pretty big that you can work with. I, I think quite a number of people have taken it up. I don't know how many are still sticking with it, but it was a really great project. And I thought, okay, I will do that. James, if people wanted to follow your work further, or find out more about the secrets of Sha'arthan or any of the other things you've been talking about, where can they find you? Grognardia, my blog, is the main place that I write these days. So I think it should be pretty easy to find. Just type that into Google and it'll take you there. James, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'll certainly include links in the show notes. 